Uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Philippians this morning, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Last night, I was asked an interesting question by a friend. We went and were having dinner with some friends yesterday evening after that concert that Mark mentioned during announcements, the one in honor of Dr. Plew up at the university. And we were chatting around, I guess, the dinner table. It was a little bit later than that. It was more like dessert, but... One of my friends mentioned that he had been having some recent conversations with another acquaintance of ours, a man who claims to be a Christian, but a man who also just recently has made the claim that he's no longer a man. He's now a woman. And my friend was asking me, because he's been having conversations with this other acquaintance, how am I supposed to counsel this person? How am I supposed to counsel this man who now claims to be a woman? These are questions that kind of go, wow, that's where we're at in society now that we're having to answer these kinds of questions, questions relating to transgenderism and sexuality. And this acquaintance, this transgender man, he claims to still be a Christian. He was someone that I had known from a Christian school that I attended. That's how I knew of him. And so my, my friend last night was asking, okay, how do I engage in conversation with someone who claims to be a Christian and was born as a man but no longer claims to be a man? How would you answer that question? Nothing like starting out this morning on a light note, right? <laughs> Well, I answered that question by saying, first of all, I think it's wonderful that you're willing to engage him in conversation and seek to speak truth to him in love, because it's certainly easy for us to, from afar, say these things are clearly wrong. They're distortions of what God created. They represent the impact of a depraved mind within society. It's easy for us to stand in condemnation and judgment on those things, and the Bible is not unclear about these matters. It's very clear. But I affirmed the fact that my friend, out of a love for Christ, wanted to engage in conversation with this individual because he wants to see this person repent of that wrong way of thinking and living and live in a way that honors the Lord. Then secondly, I said, I, I think it's really important in this conversation that you have, the ongoing conversation that you have, that you bring the focus back to the gospel, that you don't allow yourself to get distracted with the external and obvious issues, but instead that you focus on the heart of the gospel because it is the power of the gospel alone through 
the Holy Spirit that can transform a heart and change a life. And so the issue is the gospel. Thirdly, it's important for this individual to understand that although he may claim to be a Christian, he is not a Christian. Because again, the Bible is not unclear on these things, and the passage that came to my mind was 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 and following, where Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? And he goes on to list a number of categories of unrighteousness, and two of those categories are the effeminate and homosexuals. And I said it's very clear in that passage that someone who God created as male but now claims to be female falls into a category in which by their conduct they have evidenced the fact that their heart is not regenerate. And so again, the need is the gospel. And then I said, finally, I think it's very, very critical that you explain to this person that his identity, if he is to honor the Lord, if he were to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, his identity is not found in gender. His identity is not found in gender. It's not found in ethnic background. It's not found in political affiliation. It's not found in socioeconomic status. It's not found in his career for Christians, our identity is found in Christ. Now, I share that story this morning for two reasons, maybe three reasons. One, because it was a conversation I just had last night, so it's been on my heart and on my mind. But it illustrates two realities. Number one, it illustrates the fact that we live at a time in our society where the downward spiral of what we see in places like Romans chapter 1 is just becoming increasingly evident. It's amazing for me to consider the reality that there are those who would claim the name of Christ and yet claim a lifestyle of homosexuality or transgenderism or whatever other distortion of a biblical worldview you might put in that gap. But this is where our society is these days. And it's only going to become increasingly pervasive. But then secondly, that conversation reminded me and reiterated the reality that as believers, our identity must be found in the Lord Jesus. And it's not just the transgenderism issue. There are a lot of other issues that are swirling in society these days where people are getting all up in arms about all sorts of things. And what clarifies it for us as believers is that our identity is found in Christ. Again, it's not in gender, it's not in ethnicity, it's not in politics, it's not in socioeconomic status, it's not in your career. Your identity as a Christian is found in Christ. 
Today is May 1st. Welcome to the month of May. You've made it this far. Congratulations. Today is May 1st, and May 1st is May Day. You may or may not have remembered that this morning, that today is May Day. I looked up the history of May Day because I was desperate for an illustration. <laughs> and, and because I teach history, so I always have to give the history of things. But May Day actually goes back all the way to 1889 when a group, I believe they were here in America, but there was a group called the Marxist International Socialist Congress. Interesting group. They passed a resolution that said that workers shouldn't work more than eight hours a day. This was in 1889, and they celebrated that on the first day of May. So that's where May Day comes from. May Day has to do with labor unions and those kinds of things. But May Day took on another meaning in 1923 when a British air traffic controller introduced the idea of May Day as a distress call for aircraft that were in trouble. The reason he utilized that term actually has nothing to do with its history in the labor union disputes of the late 19th century. It's because apparently, and I do not speak French, Steve Kondakshian can correct me afterwards, but apparently in French, the phrase, help me, sounds a lot like May Day in English. I thought that was kind of interesting. Because when I think of the world around us, the society in which we live, the illustration of an aircraft that is in major trouble and is about to crash seems to be like a fitting illustration. So here we are on May Day, and the world around us is heading in a direction that is really, really disconcerting. Now, it's not a direction that's a surprise to us, right? Romans chapter 1, at the end of Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, all the way to the end of the chapter, the Apostle Paul delineates the downward spiral of pagan society, how they begin to worship the creation. Sounds a lot like the modern environmentalist movement. How they exchange the truth for a lie and how they begin to engage in all sorts of behavior that is contrary to the created order that God established. So we're not surprised when we see the downward spiral and the decay of the world around us. It fits exactly the biblical pattern. I mean, I think Romans 1 and what Paul writes there is so prophetic in the way that it describes the downward spiral of the society around us that it's a, just another evidence of the divine nature of Scripture because the description, the diagnosis is so exact. On Tuesday here at the seminary, Pastor John was our chapel speaker, and he preached a message from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where Paul commands the Corinthians to be strong and courageous and to act like men. And it was this great 
message on gospel courage. But he made an interesting comment in that message. Pastor John said, how did he say it? He said, America is not on the verge of being lost. America is already lost. America is not on the verge of being under the judgment of God. America is already under the judgment of God. And when you look at Romans 1, which details what happens when a society is under God's judgment, you go, oh, yep, I see that. Yep, I see that. It's almost like a checkbox. And you're just kind of like, yep, check, check, check. Now, this is a depressing beginning to a morning message, and I recognize that. But if you read the news, whatever news app you use on your phone or whatever news station you listen to, if you keep in touch with current events, then if you're like me, every time you're done reviewing the headlines, you're like, oh, man, it's not getting better. I mean, Elon Musk might salvage Twitter. We'll see. But it's not, it's not getting better. I remember a church historian named Carl Truman. He's a name that some of you may recognize. And um, I remember him saying, in sort of his characteristic wit, he said, Church historians, he said, are always pessimists because they've seen all of this before in history and they know how it ends. And and I appreciate his perspective on that because there is a sense in which we have seen these kinds of things before. And when we look at passages like Romans 1, we see in Scripture where all of this downward spiral is heading and it's only going to get worse. But I have a little bit of a quibble with Dr. Truman because while on the one hand I am in agreement with the idea that there is a pessimistic sense to seeing history repeat itself and to seeing human history heading towards really the cliff that the book of Revelation promises is coming, My quibble is that as Christians, as those who find their identity in Christ, we are not pessimists. We are optimists. Now, I tend to be optimistic by nature. It's my personality. I tend to see the bright side of things. I have people in my life who are maybe less optimistic than I am, and they tell me that they're not pessimists. They're realists. And I appreciate that, and as an optimist, I'm willing to accept that definition of pessimism. (laughs) And we're just being realistic when we talk about where our world is going. And, you know, we've enjoyed here in the United States several centuries of time in which a basically Christian worldview, a Judeo-Christian worldview, was upheld and accepted But we're coming to a place where the tides on that are changing, and I think they're changing quite quickly and quite dramatically. And so I think it is important for us to be realistic 
And yet we can be realistic and still be optimistic if we're Christians. And our passage this morning in Philippians chapter 3 explains why that is. How can I be a realistic optimist? Because <laughs> things are getting worse, not better. I don't want to be like that character in the Lego movie. You remember Emmett? Everything is awesome. And my favorite scene from those series of cartoons is at the beginning of the second Lego movie when the world is completely crumbling around him and Emmett still says everything is awesome. That's a blind optimism. I want us to have an optimism that comes from having eyes wide open to what is happening around us and yet we're still optimistic for reasons that this text will explain for us. What I love about this text in Philippians is that it gives us reasons to be hopeful and to be optimistic, both when the society around us is getting worse and also when our own personal circumstances are not what we wish they could be. So this is an optimism, or I'm going to use a more biblical word, a hope that is given to us that buoys us whether the storm is a personal individual trial that we are enduring or whether it is something where we look at the world around us and we see that it is heading in a direction that is deeply discouraging to us. So this is hope that is both individual, personal, and also hope that characterizes us as believers collectively, even when we are lights in a very dark world. A little bit about the background of Philippians. The Apostle Paul wrote Philippians when he was under house arrest during what we call his first Roman imprisonment. He would have written this probably in the early 60s of the first century. You can read about Paul's first Roman imprisonment in the last chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 28, where Luke says that he was imprisoned there for at least two years. And during that time, he wrote what we call his prison epistles. And that includes Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. So Paul is writing from essentially a prison cell. In fact, he's likely chained to a Roman guard while he is writing the words of this letter. I think it's kind of interesting because the first time that Paul went to Philippi, this was on his second missionary journey about 10 years before he wrote this letter, in Acts chapter 16, you'll remember that he was arrested and thrown in jail. In fact, very famous story from the book of Acts. Paul and Silas are there in the Philippian jail when God sends an earthquake and they are able to leave, and yet they stay behind to minister to and witness to that Philippian jailer. Remember Acts 16.30, the Philippian jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's answer is so classic. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be 
saved. So I mentioned that story because I think it's interesting that the Philippians and their connection and context with Paul, seems like Paul's always in jail. He was in jail the first time he was there in Philippi. He's in jail now when he's writing this letter to them. And I mention that because Paul certainly was no stranger to personal trials and hardship and difficulty. I mean, we could look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul outlines all of the different hardships and difficulties that he experienced as a minister of the gospel. You're familiar with that chapter. He talks about being beaten, being hungry, being homeless, being shipwrecked. What I find so fascinating about 2 Corinthians 11 is that Paul wrote that in the mid-50s, which was only about halfway through his missionary career. So all of those things detailed in 2 Corinthians 11, that's just the first half of Paul's missionary career. The shipwreck in Acts chapter 27 is not the shipwreck that he talks about in 2 Corinthians 11. So the point is, Paul was no stranger to personal adversity and hardship. If you think that... Life is hard for us, and it can be. I think when we read passages like 2 Corinthians 11 and we see all that Paul endured, it puts some of our suffering and hardship into context. So Paul was no stranger to personal suffering, and here he is in prison writing a letter to the Philippians And what is the theme of the letter to the Philippians? Well, it's kind of unexpected, but it's a theme of, on the one hand, unity, but even more than that, joy. And you kind of find yourself asking throughout this book, how is it possible that the Apostle Paul can express this kind of joy when he himself is in prison, chained to a Roman guard, under house arrest, about to stand trial for the faith? And the answer is because Paul was an optimist. Not some sort of blind optimism, but he was hopeful. Or maybe to say it another way, Paul was a Christian. I do sometimes say that to my friends who are more pessimistic. Oh, you're a pessimist. That's interesting. I'm a Christian. You can have fun with that. (laughs) Paul recognizes that the society of pagan Rome is depraved and getting worse. Paul's own personal circumstances, he's incarcerated, his freedom is gone, he's about to stand trial for the gospel. And yet in spite of his personal trials and in spite of the fact that the society around him is spiraling out of control, Paul says to the Philippians, you need to rejoice. In fact, in chapter 4, he's going to say that explicitly. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. So, How is it that we as Christians can have this kind of hope, 
filled optimism when our own lives, in our own lives, we endure trials and tribulation and hardship and affliction. And in the world around us, we see antagonism and hostility and depravity. And I mean, honestly, things that five years ago I would have thought sounded so ridiculous, there was no way those things could be true, are showing up in my news headline almost every day. How can we be realistic optimists? Well, the passage I want to look at specifically this morning is Philippians chapter 3, starting in, verses, starting in verse 17. And we're going to consider the final verses of chapter 3 into the first part of chapter 4, under three headings. We're going to start by talking about the contrast between those who are citizens of heaven and those who are not. And then we're going to talk about the character of those who are citizens of heaven. And then when we look at chapter 4, we're going to talk about the conduct that ought to flow out of that. But I love what Paul says there in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 17, but before we read that part, look just down a few verses at chapter 20, and the reminder there that our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. This brings us back to what we were saying at the beginning about identity. Our identity is in Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven And that reality changes everything about how we view and process and evaluate the world around us and even our own individual hardships and trials. Because our citizenship is in heaven, we see things very, very differently. So I want to start by talking about a contrast between citizens of heaven and those who are not, and then the character of those who are citizens of heaven, and then the conduct that ought to mark our lives as those who live and walk as citizens of heaven. We'll start with the contrast in verses 17 to 19. Uh, Just to give you a little bit more context about the flow of the book of Philippians in Chapter 1, Paul introduces these great themes. He talks about the fact that he's in prison. He talks about the fact that there are even those who are preaching the gospel to spite Paul. So he has enemies both outside the church and even those who are hostile to him inside the church. And yet he finds joy in all of it because, as he says in verse 20, 21 of chapter 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So his focus is all about Christ because he finds his identity in Christ. Of course, I love the promise of Philippians 1.6, a great verse about sanctification, that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until that day. Really a promise that Paul picks up on in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in us. 
course, before Paul says that, he goes on this great, it's kind of interesting, sometimes we call these Pauline parentheses, but they're not really parenthetical because it's the heart of the gospel, but Paul goes on this great exposition about the beauty of the humility and the glory of Christ. Right at the beginning of chapter 2, that we are to consider one another as more important than ourselves. We have this mind in us, which was also in Christ Jesus, and then that glorious explanation of the kenosis, the emptying, the humility of Christ, that he was obedient as a man even to the point of death, and God raised him up, and he ascended, and he is at the throne of God, the one who is given the name above any other name, the name Lord. Paul goes on in chapter 2 to talk about the reality of our pursuit of sanctification that flows out of the recognition that Jesus is our risen, ascended, exalted King. Into chapter 3, where Paul then confronts false teachers who are trying to add works to the gospel of grace, and then he reiterates the truth of the gospel. And even goes back and talks about his time as a Pharisee and says, you know, I I used to have this great big resume of good works and self-righteousness that I thought was going to earn me credit with God. And I realized that it is all rubbish and dung. And all that I need is Christ and his righteousness. It's his death that pays the penalty for my sins so that I can be forgiven. And it's his resurrection that is the proof that the eternal life that he promises will be realized for those who trust in him. And it's at the end of that great crescendo on the gospel that Paul here in verses 17 and following reminds his readers, and by extension us, that as those who have been forgiven through Christ, as those who have eternal life in Christ, as those who have a risen and exalted king who is Lord of lords and before whom every knee will one day bow. We are citizens of heaven and that makes a difference. In fact, it makes the difference for how we think about what's happening in our own lives and in the world around us. So verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So Paul's going to give us a contrast here. And this is not uncommon in Scripture for the scriptures to present two ways. In fact, it's a very common feature of wisdom literature all the way back in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 1. There's two ways. The book of Proverbs, there's two ways. The Sermon on the Mount, there's two ways. Here Paul uses similar language to express the fact that there are two paths. Walk according to my example, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Avoid walking in the path of the unrighteous. 
those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul may have specifically a group of false teachers in mind when he writes this, but the principles and the description here, I think you'll agree, really characterize all of those who are antagonistic to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Look at the description here starting in verse 19. We see in verse 19 their destiny, whose end is destruction. And then their devotion, whose God is their appetite. And then their delight, whose glory is in their shame. And their domain, who set their minds on earthly things. It's hard for me to imagine a more concise description of the way that our world thinks. Their end is destruction. This is their destiny. It's what characterizes them. I think of Pilgrim's Progress, which begins with the story of a man who is in the city of destruction. Now, that man was saved, (laughs) but the citizens of the city of destruction... The very city was named that because not only was their character destructive, but their destiny was judgment. So here we have a description of the people, the citizens of this world, that their end is destruction, and then their devotion, whose God is their appetite. Again, what an apt description of the way that our society way that our society works, what it is that our society celebrates. Whose God is their appetite? I was even thinking just a little bit about the history of Western culture. It was during the Enlightenment, the Age of Enlightenment, so-called, in the started in the 17th century, really gained momentum in the 18th and 19th centuries, that Western civilization abandoned really a theistic worldview, a supernatural worldview in which God is honored as the creator and God's word and God's law is honored as that which is absolute and unchanging. They abandoned that for... Rationalism, which is the elevation of human reason, empiricism, which is the elevation of science, and something called romanticism, which is the elevation of self. And it's, it's really interesting if you were to look at, for example, in the 17th century, the opening question of the shorter Westminster Catechism. This is something you're familiar with. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That represented an actually quite common worldview in the 17th century in Western civilization, that the goal of your life was to honor God and meaning in your life was found through enjoying him. But by the time we get a century later to the birth of this nation, In the 18th century, the Enlightenment thinking has taken over, and suddenly what's protected by our Constitution and the Bill of Rights? Well, sure, you have some rights that 
came from some creator. Most of our founding fathers were deists. And then it's the pursuit of your own happiness that's protected. So interesting. I mentioned Carl Truman's name earlier. He recently wrote a book on the rise of the self. The title's a little bit longer than that, but you can find it easily on Amazon if you're interested in studying the history of this. But we live in a society now where people are convinced that all they need to know is what reason and science can teach them, and the meaning in their life is found by pursuing their own happiness. As Christians, what we need to know is found in the Word of God first and foremost, and the goal and pursuit and meaning for us in life is found by serving and pleasing Him. I think it's fascinating that here we are in the first century and the Apostle Paul identifies something that characterizes 21st century Western society. Their God is their own appetites. Who do most people in our secular society serve? They serve themselves. Now, don't get me wrong, they're slaves to sin and they're under the power of the evil one, they're children of disobedience. That's how Paul describes them in Ephesians chapter two. But when it comes to the idol of their heart, it is whatever they themselves want, their appetites, their lusts, their desires. And Paul goes on and he describes them next as those who glory in their shame they glory in their shame, so their destiny is destruction and their devotion is themselves. Their delight or their glory is in things that God himself condemns. And we've already talked a bit about this, but again, it doesn't take long reading the headlines from pretty much any given week to see that our society glories in things that God calls shameful. Reminded of 1 John 2, 16 and 17, that the lusts of this world are passing away. The lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And those who pursue those things will also pass away. And then their domain, they set their mind on earthly things. And that's because they suffer from Severe spiritual myopia, severe spiritual nearsightedness. The world around us does not think about eternity. In fact, most of them deny that eternity even exists. The great lie of the Enlightenment, the great lie of empiricism, was that this natural universe is all that there is. So if this is all that there is, Live for yourself. Do everything you can to maximize your own pleasure and enjoyment in the here and now because when you die, you cease to exist. But we as believers, we know different. And so from that contrast in verses 17 to 19, I want you to look at the character of 
those who are citizens of heaven in verses 20 and 21. And really, Paul here identifies our home and our hearts and our our hope. But verse 20, that contrast is so clear. But our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And then Paul will go on to identify three aspects or three character traits that mark those who are citizens of heaven in terms of how they think, how our perspective is different than the world around us. Those in the world around us live as if there is no tomorrow, and yet there will come a time when they will stand before Christ to give an account, right? Hebrews says it is appointed for men once to die, and then comes judgment. And so their end is destruction. They act as if the whole point of life is to please themselves. And so the, the God they serve is their own lusts and their own appetites. And they pursue all sorts of depraved and sinful pleasures. And so they glory in their shame. And it's because their gaze is set entirely on this earth. But for us, as citizens of heaven, what do we know that changes how we think? Well, Paul gives us three things in these verses. Number one, the return of our Savior. The return of our Savior, right? It's right there in verse 20. We are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our identity, our allegiance, our affection Our priority is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for the non-Christian, their destiny is destruction. But for us, the first part of verse 20, our destiny is heaven. Their devotion is is to their own appetites. Our devotion is to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we await his return. He's coming back. I mean, it was just Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, a couple weeks ago, and when we celebrate the resurrection, what we're celebrating also is his return, because he who raised and ascended will return. My wife and I saw a documentary. This was... I don't know, a week or so ago on Elon Musk and SpaceX. I guess we were desperate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Musk made this comment. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, my goal is to see humanity become an interplanetary species. My goal is to see a city on the moon and a colony on Mars. And I heard that, and you know what I thought? Jesus is coming back soon. (laughs) 
I'm like, the Lord's coming back so soon. That was my takeaway from that documentary. There was other stuff there that was cool, but that was my takeaway. Not only the return of our Savior, but tied to it in the next verse, the resurrection of our bodies. Verse 21, when he returns, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. So the unbeliever delights in his own appetites and in shameful things that degrade his body. But for believers, our delight is in the hope that we have in the return of Christ and in the resurrection of our bodies in his likeness. As John says in 1 John, when we see him, we will be like him. And then a third characteristic of our hope there at the end of verse 21, the reign of our king. He will accomplish this by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Well, this, this changes how we think about what's happening around us, and it changes how we think about difficulties and challenges and hardships that we are enduring at an individual level. How can Paul sit in a prison cell and tell the Philippians to rejoice? How can Paul endure so much and himself still be an optimist? How can he look at the Roman society around him and write Romans 1 depicting the downward spiral and degradation of that culture and still be an optimist? Because... Because he's a citizen of heaven who knows three things. One, Jesus is coming back. Two, this body is going to be raised. And three, my Lord is going to reign over all of the earth, all of the universe. He will subject all things through his power. He's going to return. I'm going to be raised. And he's going to reign. Okay. My news app's not so scary anymore. And that personal trial that I'm enduring right now isn't so hopeless anymore. Because I'm a citizen of heaven, and that changes everything about how I think about earth. Now, I said I had three points in this message. And I do, but it's also almost 10.30. But my planning was not as bad as you all might expect because I get to come back next week. So we're going to finish this up next week and talk about, okay, if this is how the world acts and I'm to not do that, that's the contrast, if this is how I'm supposed to think when I put on the helmet of the hope of salvation and I remember that my citizenship is in heaven and that Christ is coming back and that one day I'll be raised and that he's going to reign over all, how does that change how I'm supposed to live right now? How does my future change my present? That's what we'll talk about next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that our identity 
as those who have been so mercifully saved through the death of your Son and so graciously promised eternal life through the first fruits of his resurrection. Lord, my request for all of us is that we would think like Christians, which means to think like citizens of heaven. We can be both realistic and optimistic because our hope is found in our Savior who will one day return, who will raise our bodies and transform them into his likeness and who will reign over all restoring perfect justice. What a glorious day that will be. And so we say with the saints throughout all of church history, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.